From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous when- uh, Wednesday. How am I doing? Thursday to each and every one of you. Um... Uh, Father Brian thought he was Father Mitch for a minute there. How did how did you enjoy your five seconds of Jesuitness? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's Mitch, it's good. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> if you'd like to be part of the program with Father Brian today, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one. 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall behind the glass, spinning the dials, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky. And Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And not a Jesuit, a Dominican, but the host of Open Line Thursday, our very own Father Brian Milady. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am terrific. So something has happened since last we were together. It became uh, October. Yes, that's true. Which is the month traditionally of the Holy Rosary. That's right. And you know, I know you've got some prepared remarks on the Rosary, but you know, and I'm I am chief among the violators here. But we have so much evidence. We have, we have so much encouragement from every apparition that Our Lady has ever appeared to someone on Earth, and everything else in the Church, and the anecdotal evidence of how great things work that why we don't pro- pray the rosary more is beyond me yeah well of course october is the month of the rosary because the battle of lepanto took place in october and as you know this battle basically saved christianity from islam though it's not politically correct to say that today and it was in, I believe, about 1573. In fact, in the, uh, this epic naval battle, uh, the sail of the flagship of the Christians was the first time they actually displayed the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on a, a, a warship. And uh, the Pope in Rome at the time, Pius V, asked everyone to pray for the victory of the Christians because otherwise it would have practically meant our extinction as a religion. And and they did, and he had a revelation of sorts that, uh, that he, we had won the battle, the Christians had won the battle, and also that 
uh, is by part, by means of the Holy Rosary that we express our devotion to Our Lady in having that. Now, the Holy Rosary has also been used by the Dominicans as a tool of evangelization. And its origin is the 150 Psalms. Now, we have 200 Hail Marys in the Rosary at the moment because John Paul II, of course, added five mysteries. But traditionally, there were 150 Psalms, and so 150 Hail Marys in the Rosary. And it was known as Our Lady Psalter, and the Dominicans used it as an evangelization tool. And they did that because it was, of course, it was very easy to remember. Imagine trying to have to memorize the 150 Psalms, which people used to have sort of exercises doing in the Middle Ages. The origin of the Hail Mary, indeed, is shrouded in our past. The first part, of course, comes from Scripture. But the Holy Mary, Mother of God, was added by Pius V because of the Battle of Lepanto. So this is a very, very significant date in history. And unfortunately, since most people don't know much about history anymore, <laughs> they probably don't know much about the Battle of Lepanto or how important it was for to defend our religion against unjust attacks. Now, it's kind of fitting that the rosary is so simple. After all, anybody can learn the Hail Mary, practically. And you have, uh, well, most of it should say, five mysteries. So you have 50 Hail Marys. People will talk about repetitious prayer being boring. Well, if you were to say, I love you, to your spouse, it wouldn't be boring to say it 150 times. In fact, people would like to hear that. And the rosary, therefore, was connected to the mysteries of our Lord's life as Mary was connected to them. Her faith, after all, was part of her appeal. She's said to be a virgin and a mother at the same time. She is a, a virgin because her, she keeps her faith pure. And she's basically, of course, a mother because she not only brings forth our Lord from her body, but also she brings forth our Lord spiritually by being the first member of our church. Catholics are often accused of Mary worship like we make her somehow a person of the Trinity. This is, again, a terrible misunderstanding. I had an evangelical once ask me, now, what's this Mary bit with you people anyway? And I said, well, um, you believe in Scripture, right? And he said, yes. And I said, literal interpretation? He said, yes. And I said, well, doesn't it say in Scripture, speaking of Mary, all generations will call me blessed, for he that is mighty has done great things for me. That's all we're doing is fulfilling Scripture. And he kind of looked puzzled for a minute or two and said, 
well, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> I said, yes, it does. In Vatican II, the two aspects of, I, I don't know if you know, remember this or not, but the last chapter, Gentium, <coughs> is like a coda. It's like a completion on the whole document, a summary of the whole document. And it's about Mary. So it says, for in the mystery of the church, which is itself rightly called mother and virgin, the Blessed Virgin stands out in eminent and singular fashion as an exemplar of both virgin and mother. Mary is also the new Eve, because as the first Eve was enticed to egotism by listening to the words of a wicked angel and committing an act of unloving disobedience, so the new Eve also listens to an angel, only this time a good angel, and she helps to begin our salvation by um, an act of loving obedience. Let it be done to me according to your word. And in that, she reverses the unloving disobedience of the first Eve, and also, therefore, is the prelude she was conceived without original sin. She, in her obedience and faith, is the prelude to Christ's fullness of not faith, because Jesus doesn't have faith, he's God. His own loving obedience, reversing Adam's. So, on this uh, month of the rosary, we should thank God that we have such a simple prayer to help to focus our attention on the mysteries of our Lord's life. After all, Mary always focused her attentions on him. And also, she as the new Eve, when she says, do as he tells you to the people of Cana, which is, of course, a wedding feast, she's telling us the same thing. Do whatever he tells you. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. As Father so eloquently described in the first segment of the program, October is indeed the month of the Holy Rosary. And St. John Paul II called the rosary his favorite prayer in which we meditate with Mary upon the mysteries which she, as a mother, meditated on in her heart. The rosary is one of the most cherished prayers of our Catholic Church. Join in this devotion to Mary and strengthen our connection to Our Lady. 
uh, with all sorts of things we can help you with here at EWTN, whether it be rosary beads, bracelets, boxes, pouches, rings, literature about the rosary. You can find it all at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up today is Carrie in Augusta, Georgia, listening on St. Paul Radio. Carrie, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Milady. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was asked this by a family member, and I just don't think my answer did it justice, so I was hoping you could answer it better than me. Um, uh, it comes from someone who's a practicing Catholic, and she says she understands why women can't be priests, but she doesn't understand why women can't be deacons. Well, what did you say? I think it's for the same reason. Because, and first of all, deacon is instituted, as you know, in Scripture, and uh, it's, it's only instituted for men. And it all turns around the fact that our Lord was a man, and so the people that are directly connected with the ministry of the altar, and deacons did have something to do with that, they also, as you know, distributed things to the poor and other things, which, of course, doesn't necessarily involve the character of orders, but they are connected to the ministry of the Word in the Eucharist. And just as the priest is acts in the person of Christ and the bishop experiences the fullness of the priesthood and these all involve a character of conformity to Christ so the order of deacon is a one of the parts of holy orders and it has to do with someone who is directly also connected to the ministry of the Eucharist 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Daniel. He is in Lafayette, Indiana today, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Daniel, you're on with Father Milady. Well, hello, Father. Um, I've been picking up a lot of um, information from listening to um, EWTN on the radio. I didn't even know it was on there until uh, uh, about a month ago. And everything seems more uh, believable. But like with Adam and Eve, I, I, I don't know if Moses wrote that. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe you could explain that. And is it, I, I looked, at, looked at it as a metaphor for Adam being mankind and being womankind and can you uh, I'll let you go from there uh, alright well it's the, I, I would not use the word metaphor because that basically suggests a poetic device in fact it's a metaphysical treatment so you have the personal historical Adam but he in the account in Genesis especially in the account in Genesis before the sin, represents the whole human race. He's a type of the whole human race. And so he has two functions he serves. And 
is as the type of the whole human race, which is much, much more important than a metaphor, uh, that he, God seeks to explain to us what the purpose of human life is uh, philosophically. In other words, it's real. It's not just the poetic expression. And using this points out to us why it is we're here as the backdrop for all the things that will happen later in creation. It's much the same as the seven days of creation. Uh, there are people who will defend the seven days of creation, and um, uh, but, you know, obviously very few Catholic scholars, including people like St. Augustine, ever thought the world was created in seven calendar days. For one thing, the sun wasn't even created till Wednesday. <laughs> so it's very hard to understand how these can be calendar days. Why is it a week? Because that's a perfect unit of time. Why is it created in the seven days? Because that's the various orders of creation. And what the author of Genesis is attempting to teach is that not only is God not in any sense a part of the world, he's totally transcendent against many pagan philosophies, but also that the human race is the summit of that creation and that as the summit, man has a, a, a participation in dominion of the world, but it's a participation that God is actually the author of the whole truth and also of all the, well, you'd say the power in the world, but I don't want it to sound like <coughs> the power there is a, um, some kind of rivalry or attempt to force people's will on each other, is that he's the source of all truth, the source of all goodness, and the source of all power without himself being a part of the process. And that human beings were created in grace with the ability to realize that, but that depended on their own obedience. And when they disobeyed, they lost grace, and all the ills under the human race from which we need to be redeemed. So then that's when we arrive at Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Um, I'll put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. He shall strike at your head, you shall strike at his heel. And that's basically, together with Revelation, the bookend in which all of time takes place oriented toward the Savior. Now, of course, there are some people who will say, well, Jesus should have kept us from sinning, forced us to say good. Well, okay, but then, first of all, there wouldn't be, we wouldn't participate in our own destiny, which is silly. And secondly, um, God chose to do this in this way because he wanted to bring forth a deeper mercy, which is the miracle of the Incarnation. So the whole of the history of the world turns around the miracle of the Incarnation, or Christ coming and dying on the cross for us, and rising from the dead.
833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. We've got open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Um, regarding your, uh, your, your sort of lead point today with uh, October and the Rosary, Charles wants to know, at what point does the honoring of Mary go too far? Well, the honoring of Mary would go too far if you treated her as though she were a goddess or a fourth person of the Trinity. And that could be, for example, by claiming that Mary would teach us to deny the gospel, for instance, or that, um, to do the will of God would demand, demand something that Mary had supposedly taught in some vision. Um, also, it's it's sometimes uh, there have been Marian apparitions, which I don't think are real myself, and that's one of the reasons because anything that contradicts Catholic doctrine can't be real. But uh, one in one, Mary says, "If only I'd been a sinner, I could appreciate the mercy of God more." Well, that's not true. It's just contrary to our faith. Or another one had Mary measuring the skirts of the women that came. <laughs> um, this is just ridiculous. I mean, the Blessed Virgin has a lot more important things to do in life than measure people's skirts. But it's the kind of thing that uh, some people who are overly obsessed with dress codes <laughs> might attribute to a heavenly creature, even though it's silly. So if... If anything seems to be silly, if it seems to be over the top, or it contradicts the conscience of truth we're taught, then we can be certain that this is uh, an excess of devotion to Mary. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. I know, Father, during your years in the priesthood, people have sought your uh, counsel for many uh, different um, weaknesses that may befall them. And Barry's hoping that you can help him with some pra practical tips for overcoming scrupulosity. Well, scrupulosity is one of the most difficult conditions someone can suffer from, spiritual conditions. And the trouble is, you see, that if you try to tell someone that they're nuts, basically, on their scrupulosity, they're always convinced that you really don't know. They know. And um, I'm, I, can, I know of a case where someone was in a religious order and he went to confession to priest after priest after priest after priest. And every priest would tell him he was nuts. These things weren't sins or problems. Um, but he didn't agree. He didn't believe it then. You know, he, he just didn't know. And it reached the point where the person believed that if he had a thought about a sin, like so let's say he watched a horse race on TV and he thought horse racing was evil, that he committed a sin, uh, it reached the point where during Mass, this person actually got up and went over to the priest to ask permission to go to communion because he had a thought about a sin.
and uh, in other words, an imagination about it. And the priest said, you know, you're crazy. No, don't worry about it. Ah, but all you have to do is tell them not to worry about it, and they worry more. (laughs) 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our good friends at Divine Mercy Radio in the great state of North Carolina need to hear from you next week. They'll be airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive all next week. So if you're listening to AM540 in the greater Raleigh area or anywhere for that matter, please be sure to generously support your EWTN Catholic Radio Station. Still plenty of time for your calls. Grab the phone and give us a jingle at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is uh, Matt. He is in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Matt, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hi. Good afternoon, Father. Um, I hope this is something that you'll have some insight on. I was wondering about the, the morality of Spanish bullfighting, specifically how they... They kill the bull at the end. There's uh, some blood and violence involved. And uh, I wanted to know if this is something that Catholics can support, attend, um, even participate in, that kind of thing. Well, okay, let me first preface my answer by saying I don't really know. (laughs) However, I have discussed this a little bit, especially with Hispanics. And... It's a cultural phenomenon for them. And they will explain to you that this represents the drama of life and death and man versus nature. And uh, for us, it seems like cruelty to animals. However, these humongous bulls, I seriously doubt, could at the same token be considered... um, what would you say, helpless? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the bull fights the matador, uh, although they sometimes they get help from the picadors and things like that that prick them in the muscle in the back of the neck. But those are formidable animals. And it's almost like Moby Dick, you know, where the captain bells against nature and everything in the person of this whale this huge, humongous whale that no one's ever been ever to kill, according to the interpretation I read of Moby Dick, was that's God. And it's man's struggle against God. <clears throat> so uh, I think culturally, a person could certainly justify participating in it. The question is, if you are a member of the culture, this would be a good thing for you or not. And I think I personally would find bullfighting repulsive. But um, that's just because I don't like butchery, basically. But, of course, it's not exactly butchery because the bull has, a, you know, has its own armor. And it can be, it's a very dangerous animal. And all the monitor has is a cape and a sword. So... Uh, 
Anyway, that's all of my insight I have on that. I'm sorry. Are you going to Spain, Matt? I've actually been to Spain. I'm a Spanish teacher, and I'm trying to present uh, the the practice and all the perspectives on it that I can, and I just want to make sure that I'm as informed about it as I can be. Personally, I think it's it's really fascinating, but, yeah, it's, it's a little, well, gruesome would be probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. Well, I think the fascination is the what is the central appealing aspect to the uh, spectators because, uh, as I say, it sort of represents man's conquest of nature, but it's not exactly sure that nature won't conquer man uh, because, of the, as I say, bulls are very dangerous. Very good. Thanks, Matt. We really appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We'd love to hear from you at 833-288-3986. Taylor writes in, where does the idea of doctrine based on tradition and independent of sacred scripture come from? Oh, right from the beginning of the church. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, there were, there were several centuries before there was any kind of a Bible, right? That's right. I mean, tradition is the word of God uh, spoken. Uh, scripture is the word of God written. And the word of God written had its origin in the word of God spoken. Because, as you know, many of the evangelists were scribes to the first preachers. So Luke, for example, was Paul's scribe. Mark was Peter's scribe. Matthew, of course, was writing for the Jewish mission, so he would have written by himself. And and John, uh, he has his own take on the world. But tradition came first because the preaching of the apostles came first. Then they sought to preserve the preaching of the apostles, and so they wrote it down under inspiration, and that became the Gospels. Or, in the case of St. Paul, the letters of St. Paul and some of the other apostles. So, um, the idea comes right from Scripture itself. Um, where, uh, how are they, you know, how can they know if they're not, if it isn't preached? And how can it be preached if people aren't sent to do it? And Jesus himself associated people with his own mission by ordering them to preach, not to write down. So the attempt uh, to preserve the preaching of the apostles in its salient points was basically what the uh, original scriptures were about, of course, all being under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A rare opportunity for you. Wide open phone lines on a Thursday. 833-288-3986. Joyce wants, you know, we have this, I think one of the things that drives a lot of uh, uh, Protestant denominations is the human desire to know things for sure. And Joyce wants to know, how can we say that we won't know if we are truly detached from sin until we are beyond this life? 
Well, here you have to make a distinction. <laughs> Dominicans are very much into distinctions. In fact, when I was a young brother being taught St. Thomas, we were told, seldom affirm, never deny, always distinguish. Well, there's absolute certainty, and then there's relative certainty. So we don't have an absolute certainty that we're in the state of grace or, you know, without sin, unless God reveals that to us, because we don't know, finally speaking, the state of our soul with God. We know what we're promised. If we confess our sins, then we'll be in the state of grace and then go to heaven. Uh, we have a relative certainty, though, that as long as we detest sin and love good, that we are in the state of grace. So we certainly do have a relative certainty insofar as a person can be certain in this life unless they receive a special revelation from, from God. Have you done much mar marriage counseling in your ministry years, Father? Who, me? Yes. No, I worked in a seminary <laughs> <laughs> for 30 years. Not much marriage counseling yeah. going on. Well, Adam there. writes in, this is a situation that I think uh, some people find themselves in, but he says, if one partner in a marriage is using contraception, but the other spouse is opposed to it, what recourse do they have? Oh, well, that's a famous question. And uh, it's obviously an important one because of our whole stance on contraception today. The recourse you have, first of all, well, of course, the obvious recourse is just to refuse intercourse, but that's a little extreme, um, given the fact that it might turn the person totally off to anything. And, of course, it, it does put a great strain on the marriage. However, you certainly can tell... Okay, the first thing you can do is say how you disagree. Most people are too chicken, you know, too cowardly to come out and just say, I think this is wrong and I don't like uh, If I participate in it, you're going to make me do it against my will, basically, under protest. Now, not, it's obviously not against your will because you're, you're choosing to do it. But it was, all things being equal, you would not choose that. The second thing is that um, you, you need to have a... I always say 50% of this... And this is true in the religious life, too, and unfortunately rarely happens. I mean, you need to have a realistic conversation, if you can, about what's going on. Now, some people aren't capable of that, or they're mad enough, angry enough, or whatever, so they refuse to discuss it. But you need to try to have a realistic conversation on what's, what effect not having contraception or having contraception could have on your union. And it, it can't just be because, uh, you know, it makes me feel good when, when I have sex. It's got to be something much different because that's, that's not us. We're, we're not in it just for the uh, pleasure. People that are find they're dealing with fool's, fool's gold eventually. But communication is extremely important in this. Even if you were to practice natural family planning, 
as you know, this can't be a substitute for communication. In fact, one of the reasons people recommend natural family planning is that at least the husband and wife have to communicate enough to know when the fertile period is or not. And that's a that's a, not a bad, you know, thing. I mean, it's it's intimate and you have to be open to what your spouse or your wife, especially your wife, tells you um, about when she feels she's uh, able to conceive by her, her reading the signs in her body. So I would say that a realistic conversation is important and constantly emphasizing to your spouse, Not I don't mean harping on it, but constantly emphasizing to your spouse that your spouse is doing something that you personally find repugnant. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've still got time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. John asks, when Jesus was in the garden praying to his father, asking him to remove the cup, was he being weak and asking for the crucifixion to be removed from him? Oh, that's a famous issue. Uh, no, actually, again, w distinctions are very important. <laughs> and the will has three basic aspects to it because it is always affirming what's good. Now, there are many levels of goodness in us. So first of all, you have the will as nature, which affirms our existence. And in other words, anything that threatens our existence as a being is, would be opposed to our will. Secondly, you have the will of pleasure. Anything that's going to cause us great pain is something that would be contrary to our will. But then you have the choosing will, which is where morals takes place. Now, in the garden, when Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by, he was speaking on the level of his passions, his feelings, and the fact that he knew his life was going to be taken, threatened by death. On these levels, he did not will his passion. But it wasn't... Um, it, it wasn't a... Um, an attempt to emphasize the negative, it's the normal reaction of a person to having their life threatened or their, their pain, intense pain. And if you consider that Jesus' body was exquisitely fashioned, in other words, when he was cut, he felt more pain than we do. But on the level of his choosing will, despite these two things, he says, but not as I will as you will. And this resolves the dogmatic difficulty because it shows on no level of his freedom was he denying his passion or shrinking from it. It's very similar to someone, remember uh, St. Thomas, when he wrote a discussion about this, he was living in the Middle Ages. And if someone had told you you had to have your arm amputated for gangrene, well, you would not will that <laughs> from the point of view of your nature because it would threaten your life or your passions because it would feel rotten. 
but you could choose it as Saint, as Christ did because of the greater goods involved. In the case of the amputation, it would be your own personal life. But in the case of Jesus, it's the salvation of the whole human race of sin. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You know, the Synod on Synodality in Rome started yesterday, and Raymond Arroyo on the world over tonight has some great commentary on the events taking place in Rome with his guest tonight, Ed Penton. Raymond Cardinal Burke, Gerhard Cardinal Mueller, uh, Robert Royal, and Father Gerald Murray, and they will all have a discussion about that big event in Rome. That's the world over tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Next up is Jacob in the great state of Idaho listening to Salt and Light Radio with a follow-up to Adam's email. And, Father, you're going to love it because Jacob is asking if you should make a distinction between two things. Jacob, Good. Jacob, you're on with Father Milady. Hello, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Um, yes, I was asking, should a distinction be made between barrier contraceptive versus like an abortifacient um, contraceptive with regard to it being permissible to continue to have intercourse? Um... I didn't get the first one. So he's 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 saying when you're when you're when the the question that Adam had about what his recourse was in in that situation. Yes. Jacob is wondering if you should draw a distinction in deciding whether you should continue the marital embrace. Should you make a distinction between abortifacient contraception as opposed to barrier contraception? Oh, barrier contraception would be like a a, a like rubber. A yeah. Condom, yes. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Obviously, one's worse than the other because it does cause uh, death of the uh, baby. But they're still equal, evil, and there can be no such distinction made. You cannot have uh, sex when you're denying its fruits by artificial means. The church maintains that since God himself has placed natural infertility in the woman's cycle, that making use of divine providence, which would be the natural infertility God has placed in the woman's cycle, and forming their judgments based on the fertility or infertility of the woman, that a person could practice that contraception for a grave reason. But if it involves any kind of artificiality, and of course a barrier would be artificial, so would a pill, even, even if one isn't an abortifacient, neither one can be justified under Catholic moral doctrine. I think, you know, we really need to realize how important the issue of contraception is because it's basically the great watershed in Catholic teaching, one way or the other. And also, as soon as people, and this took place actually around the time of the Napoleonic Wars of the French Revolution, as soon as they separated children from sex, it was all over. 
And this has led to our marriage malaise today and family malaise. And that itself leads to difficulties with the church and many other things. So we need to look upon contraception as the hole in the dike. And it's the one thing that all the people who are liberals in the 60s wanted. Um, they wanted the use of artificial means without self-control. And this is the one thing that Pope John Paul II was most eloquent about in his theology of the body. And, of course, that's questioned today, even by people in the magisterium, which is strange, considering I think it was a settled question already. Uh, next up is Xavier. He's another first-time caller in the great state of Florida watching us on YouTube today. Xavier, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Milady. Hello. Um, can I still be an Orthodox Catholic if I believe the Bible has contradictions? Uh, yes, it depends on what the contradiction's about. Again, we're back to distinctions. Um, if the contradictions are about doctrinal issues, you know, then you couldn't be. But, uh, you know, remember the Bible, everything in the Bible is oriented to faith, not necessarily to science. Uh, and there are things that a person could find there that might be scientific contradictions or something like that, but they don't touch faith, so therefore it depends on what it's about. You know, you asked me an extremely theoretical question, and it, it depends on what it's about. Thank you, Xavier. We appreciate the question. Tammy's got an interesting question, Father. Um, she wants to know, is it true to say that God the Father was born of Mary? Uh, no, that's a heresy. <laughs> because remember, Mary brought forth the person of the Word, uh, not the nature of God or divine nature. The distinctions were preserved. She brought forth human nature, but in the person of the Word. That's why we call it the hypostatic union. So, theoretically, the Father could become incarnate, or the Holy Spirit could become incarnate, but that's not what our doctrine is, and it doesn't make much sense, given what the purpose of the incarnation is. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Bob, driving through the great state of Kansas, listening on the EWTN app. Bob, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you very kindly for uh, allowing me to ask the question to the good father. I have a driving partner who insists that the writing of the Bible, the inspiration that we know about, uh, it was done without the influence of the fallen creatures, as he calls them. And so my question is basically this, that inspiration, the writing of, of the words of God, the teachings of God, uh, as uh, espoused by Christ, how, how is that done? Because the way he describes it, that these apostles were not even aware of what they were writing. It sounds to me like they were channeling, like a spirit writing almost. 
Well, it's a little more natural than that. <laughs> um, it's true it's by divine inspiration, but it's divine inspiration using a divine author and a human author. And in using the human author, it's the way we normally get inspired to do things. So, at least in two of the Gospels, it's very clear that their inspiration included people who were preaching the gospel too. So in Luke's case, remember, he was the companion of Paul. And so we see a definite Pauline influence over Luke. In Mark, Mark was Peter's scribe. Peter's very clear about that in one of his epistles. And so the tradition of the church was that when Peter was imprisoned under house arrest in Rome, he sought to evangelize Caesar's household. And he did this by using a Matthew and Luke, because Matthew's for the Jewish mission, Luke is for the Gentile mission. And he had the scrolls, because they used to write things on scrolls in those days. As they undid them, he commented on them based on his personal experience. Well, Mark was his scribe, and Mark wrote it down. And then the community considered these reflections so important as a person who was an intimate to our Lord that they asked after Peter's death, so they could remember it, that it be published in a kind of book form. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We'll be back at it again tomorrow with Open Line Friday. Your host will be our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, God bless.